Hello, everybody. How are you doing? It's September the 2nd. Ooh, it's my birthday month. I'm going to be 46 this year. <laughs> How exciting. So strange, but um, very cool. You know, it's what they say about aging. It sucks a little bit, but it sure beats the alternative. So I hope you're doing well. Uh, this Sunday show at the new time, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, because we have a couple of night owls in Malaysia who really want to be able to chat. So thank you for letting me switch the time. Uh, I hope it'll work out for you. Um, and so, uh, without any further ado, um, let's get going with the callers. Uh, who do we have this morning? Uh, first up, we have a basket case. Hit me, brother. Hi. Stefan. Hi, how's it going? Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for all the, all the work you do and all the videos you make, and it's just absolutely changed the way I look at the world, and I can't thank you enough for it all. Uh, so, my main question was about... Um, focus and concentration both in in work and talking with people what uh what, what ideas do you have to sort of improve that because i've had serious problems with you know keeping my mind on track and and with daydreaming and things like that ever since i was young and i feel like it's one of the main obstacles i have to achieving uh happiness in in life i mean both in in my work and in my relationships with other people so hmm. do you have any ideas on how to improve that? Well, first and foremost, giving you a sense of my own powers of concentration. Do you mind if I call you Sleepy Jean and tell you to cheer up? No, that means nothing to you, does it? You're too young. Cheer up, Sleepy Jean. Oh, what can it mean to a daydream believer and a homecoming? Hey, that would make me the homecoming queen. Anyway, I can do that. All right, so powers of concentration. Can you give me examples of where this is a, a big, big issue? Yeah, I mean, when I'm reading a book or something and then I notice, you know, I'm reading a topic that sort of relates to something earlier in the day, or if I'm reading something that I need to read or, and it gets really boring and so I start wandering off to, okay, I'm going to be eating lunch in a few hours, where should I go? Um, and then I think, oh, I went to that place last week and it was it was pretty good food and I was there with another friend of mine and, oh, what did I do with my friend the week before that? And, you know, things like that. Just, it, it's... It just goes from one place to another, and then by the time I realize that I'm doing it, it's, you know, 20 minutes. is I've just wasted 20 minutes thinking about nothing constructive. Okay, and what does it mean about uh, thinking about something constructive? Uh, you know, staying on task because I feel like that's the best way to get things done uh, efficiently. So, I, I mean, you know, like I said working on something, reading a book that I want to get, you know, that I want to, that I want to finish and understand, uh, or, you know, having a good conversation with somebody like my mind will start wandering if, um, you know, the conversation is something that I'm just not finding particularly interesting or something like that. So it's in, in the line of that, that it's something that I want to get done, but I just keep, my mind keeps wandering off. Right. Okay. Is it something you want to get done? Yes. Okay, let me give you um, an example. Um, have you ever been, <laughs> let's start with the, the basic biology of life. So have you ever been out sort of ro roaming around and suddenly it's like, oh my God, I have to take a monster crap. Um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think everyone's been in that situation, right? Now, have you ever had it where you get distracted and end up crapping your pants? Uh, that was a long time ago, I think. No, but, but when you were a little, little kid. But I mean, as yeah. a sort of teenager, as an adult. Oh, no, no. Okay, so you do have the capacity to take a plan called get me to a washroom, and you don't get distracted. So if the stimulus, so to speak, is strong enough, 
then the distraction doesn't really occur. Is that is that fair? Is that fair? To say? I know it's not a perfect example, but I'm just sort of trying to give give some boundaries to the chat. Uh, yeah, sure, that that makes sense. And what about uh, video games? What about them? You mean my experience with them, or? Well, do, do you play them? Uh, I used to when I was young. I played them a lot, but I don't really have the time for it anymore. And when you played them, were you able to stay concentrated, or did you get distracted from video games? Uh, I was usually able to stay concentrated. Okay, okay. Um, and what about if you're reading a really great book? Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, you know, sometimes even if I'm reading a book and I feel like it's the best book I've ever read, my mind can still wander off. Um, so... Okay. Now, this is the most important question, and, and here, of course, is where I may completely turn on you. Uh, what about when you're listening to a Free Domain Radio podcast? Oh, I, I'm 100% focused the entire time. No, no, really. Does, no, does it happen? Does it happen? <laughs> um, yeah, it does, because, you know, sometimes something interesting is mentioned, and then I start thinking, okay, well, what if I'm in a, in, in a conversation with somebody else about this particular topic, and they bring up you know, some sort of counterpoint to this. And, and then I start just having this imaginary conversation in my head with this other person um, uh, about that, you know, particular instance. And that just sort of right. goes on for a bit. And then I realize that three minutes or four minutes has passed and you're on to something different. What you're saying is that only sometimes is there something interesting said in a free radio podcast. No, we'll get to my paranoia. Okay. Um, and so would you say this is a, a very constant problem or some constant or occasional? I guess it's more than occasional if you're calling it, right? Yeah, it, it's it's very constant, actually. It, it happens with most everything I do, whether it's something that I you know, generally don't care about, which you know, obviously I think most people would be daydreaming in a situation where they're doing something they don't want to do. But even right. in things that I really enjoy doing, even in topics that I really enjoy you know, learning about or books that I really enjoy reading, uh, even movies that I enjoy watching, it just it happens so often that I, I start – you know, passing time in my head, and it just doesn't really feel like I'm absorbing what what I what I should be absorbing because it's something I'm so interested in, and I'm just I'm not really sure uh, how it originated, but it it just seems to be inbuilt into my personality, and I'm trying to find ways to control it. And do you remember a time when you were younger where this was less the case or not the case, or has this been a constant thing for your life? Uh, it's mostly been constant. I, I think I think I just haven't noticed it when I was young because I didn't have as many you know difficult constructive tasks when I was younger you know I mostly would just play and and do homework and go to school and things like that or and read books but they were like you know they weren't um they weren't Atlas Shrugged or War and Peace or anything they were just you know uh you know 10 page books or something like that so it was it wasn't as difficult of a problem um so but I noticed it a lot more when I got into high school and now that I'm in college uh you know it just it, it seems to be a lot more apparent when you get older Right, right, no, and certainly the demands on concentration in college go up. Now, in this competition, do you find that your mind is wandering or no? And uh, obviously, I don't mind if it is, I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, a little bit, actually. I mean, you know, when I mention uh, great books that I've read, I'm trying to think of instances in which that's happened, and then that starts coming to mind, and then I start getting a little frustrated about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even, even here, my, my mind can just start wandering off a little bit. Right, Okay. Okay. Now, you're probably aware that there's something called ADHD. Yes. 
Okay. You're completely aware that, of course, I have no capacity whatsoever to tell you anything useful about that. I have some significant skepticism about it, but uh, I just want to put that out there. You know, obviously, I'm sure you've done your research and, and all that. I just want to mention that. And I'm not going to talk about that at all. I have no competence in the biological basis of things. Philosophy doesn't help that. But, you know, you can look into that if you want. But I'll tell you my thoughts about the issues of concentration and where I think they come from. Okay. I think that issues of concentration come from solitude. And okay. uh, you can confirm this theory or you can deny this theory. I mean, if, if your experience was not that. So when you were a kid, uh, what was your experience of socializing? And I don't, I, by solitude, I don't just mean like you're, you're on your own, your isolation tank or something. I mean, by solitude, I mean that there's not an opportunity or an environment wherein you can share what is important to you. Uh, what your real thoughts are, and where other people can do the same thing. So uh, when you were growing up, what were, your, what were your conversations like with peers, with family, with teachers, with priests, whoever? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, they weren't really that uh, deep, I, I guess. Uh, I, I was generally, I, I mean, I liked being alone, though, when I was a kid. It was something that I, I preferred. Uh, so I, I haven't really thought about that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think... I guess my answer is yeah. I liked. I, I was solid. I was solitary for the most part, but I, I I was comfortable with that, or at least you know when I was younger, I felt more comfortable um, on my own or with a small group of friends than with you know a, a larger base of, of friends. Well, you just sort of rewrote the question a little bit, <laughs> which I can understand, right? But uh, uh, with a large group of friends, it's very difficult to have any kind of intimate conversation. And so if you were saying that you were comfortable on your own or with a small group of friends, the small group of friends is where you would have intimate conversations. Like um, intimate conversations, sort of be clear about what I mean about that. It means that how do you have an intimate conversation when you're a young child? <laughs> is that is that is that possible? I'm, I'm... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean. Look, when I was a kid, most most conversations were about Pokemon and chocolate milk and stuff. Well, sure, but that's because of the relentless tininess and shallowness of our dead skin culture. I mean, that's not because children aren't deep. Children are incredibly deep. Look, my daughter, I must always talk about my daughter, but, you know, she's the closest uh, experiment that I have going on. Um, she, I mean, I've been teaching her from very early on her feeling words, right? Because you either say it or you act it out. And so when she's frustrated, she will say, Daddy, I'm very frustrated. I'm very upset. I'm not happy. And we'll talk about that. Um, we're starting to get into conversations about where the world came from. Uh, she's starting to explore the concepts of uh, death. Um, she's, oh, and she's three and a half. Uh, she, she's, she, to me, she's incredibly deep. And uh, that's where we start. We start caring about important things. We start as children caring about universalization, right? Because if we don't universalize, we don't survive, right? I mean, if we think that, you know, if we're told that red berries are bad for you and we think that our, our parent is pointing at one red berry, but the other ones are great, then we're going to die. If we think that this height was, was dangerous for us to jump from last time, but this next height, which is even bigger, is going to be different because gravity is not universal, then we die. Okay. I mean, we can go on and on, but, but universalization is life for children. If we don't universalize, we die, which is why we have been selected through evolution to be as exquisitely universalization machines 
as humanly possible, at okay. least until we run into religion, the state, culture, and all of the other lies that we're told. But we are universalization machines. And that applies to objects, it applies to concepts, it applies to philosophy. Uh, we are universalization machines. The best philosophers <laughs> are children. Uh, my daughter is integrating concepts at a rate that I can only dream of, and I'm fairly good at integ integrating concepts. And so, yes, depth is is certainly possible. Uh, had okay. um, two absolutely delightful kids over for uh, a sleepover. Hi, children. It's great having you. And yeah, we had a great conversation uh, at dinner about well, what it means to have a temper and, and all that. And I mean, it was really enjoyable. And so, yeah, uh, it, it is absolutely, completely and totally possible. It's just that we are relentlessly pounded down and shallowed and turned into two-dimensional status seeking look i can do my goddamn rubik's cube faster than you nonsensical tiny mosquito brain competitive empty-headed nothings that is the essence of culture we're told to be small we're forced to be small. we're forced to be inconsequential you bring up any deep topic as a child for the most part and adults look at you they give you that funny look you know that funny honey i shrunk the kids nice your brain look yeah you know that one yeah i do tell me um, I, I think I remember it mainly from, from my teachers, uh, growing up, you know, I, I, I think there was, there might've been this one instance where I really wanted to, um, do an extra part to, it was like a school report and I wanted to research it a bit more and I asked my teacher if I could. And she looked at me like I was kind of, like I was kind of crazy or, or something before wanting to research the topic more because we were moving on to another subject. And I, I think it was some, somewhere along those lines that look that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I actually, even as even in college, I did a. I was, I was taking a course in Aristotle. I was really trying to understand universals, as as Aristotle put it forward. And so, uh, I did a voluntary paper, and I sat down with my professor, and we worked through it. And she was like, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> kind of thing you know this is not the bare minimum but of course this comes out in schools are, are trained to reduce competition for the ruling classes right we're taught to be small and other people are taught to be big and this is natural you see the natural turnover of a free society is that the ruling classes who have developed very expensive tastes and have become quite conservative and frankly quite lazy they face competition from ambitious hardworking, living on eight bucks a day Poor people who want to grab the gold and who have far less uh, addiction history. They have far less embedded social circles. They have far lower spending requirements. And so naturally, the ruling classes get turned over by the poor. And that's exactly how it should be. And in a free society, there would be a constant turnover. And so this is how everybody gets wealthier. <laughs> Right? If, if the ruling classes don't get turned over by the poor, striving entrepreneurial classes, everybody gets poorer because everything calcifies, it, it fossilizes, it ossifies. But the whole point of society is we all get rich by the rich getting less rich and the poor getting richer. But of course, once you get into the ruling class, once you become uh, wealthy and have all your contacts and this and that and the other, well, you don't want to be turned over. You don't want to face competition from the striving entrepreneurial poor classes. You don't want that. You want people like you. And, and that slows down progress. It slows down efficiency. 
uh, in, in other words, in economic terms, the ruling class has become rent seekers. In other words, they're seeking to maintain their income above what market forces would dictate. And to do that, they require the government, which is why you have no political party on the left. You have a bunch of telegenic sociopaths who represent the predatory public sector classes. And on the right, you have the predatory <laughs> uh, telegenic sociopaths who represent the economic ruling classes. Right. The rent seekers on the rich and the rent seekers on the middle class uh, represent. No, then neither of them represent any, anything to do with the general population. And so the reason that, that I'm talking about all of this is you have to stay small so that the wages of the rich and the income of the rich can remain officially uh, high. And so you are uh, told to uh, uh, worry about your status and, and your looks and whether you can perform some stupid-ass skateboard trick better than your friends. You, you're told to stay small and to, to judge each other by clothing, to judge each other by prettiness, to judge each other by inconsequential physical skills. Just to stay small, because if you stay small, then you don't teach anything to children about how to regrow and how to compete and how to be big and brilliant and bold. In other words, how to overturn the ruling classes. I mean, I'm just talking economically. I'm just economic overturn. Right. And so this is this is unfortunate. This is the curse of childhood. So so you stay small. I mean, look at children's TV. Children's TV is all about being nice and sharing. There's not a damn thing about competition. There's not a damn thing about ambition. There's not a damn thing about living large, living big, having big dreams. Uh, and there's certainly nothing about economics. There's nothing about <laughs> entrepreneurship and nothing like that. Nothing like that. Uh, it's all this dewy-eyed, CGI, fruity crap about sharing and little adventures that always require a big leader to save you and about how bad things happen when you don't obey your adults. And, I mean, this is all just training you to be a foot soldier in the economic army of the overlords, <laughs> sadly. So, uh, sorry for the long rant, but I, I just really oh, want no, to point out that this relentless smallness is, is inevitable. Okay, and, and are so what are you are you saying that I'm con, I was conditioned to have to be somebody whose mind will, would wander easily? Is, is that sort of what you're? No, getting what at? I'm saying is that you have a mind that wants something bigger. I would I would argue you have a mind that wants something bigger, something deeper, something more real, something richer, and you weren't allowed to to put that into practice. Okay, you don't agree. Which is fine. I mean, it is your life. I'm just putting out some some candy ass theories, but um, tell me what. Um, right. So, I mean, look, you, uh, the reason I'm saying this and let me put a tiny bit of evidence and then you can tell me if I've got my head completely up my armpit. But yeah. you really like philosophy, right? Yeah. I mean, you listen to my mad rambles. So you, <laughs> you really like. Well, let's let's just let's just call for the sake of argument what I'm doing something like philosophy. So you really have a desire for death. You want to call in. You want to talk about these issues. And this is not part of the culture that we live in, right? Yeah. This wasn't even part of the culture of a philosophy class when I was in college. This wasn't even part of big-ass views of history at the master's level at an Ivy League college in Canada. So the idea that it would be part of you, your four-year-old life is you know, kind of incomprehensible. I mean, the number of times where I put forward a great argument in college and everybody just looked at me like I'd grown a third penis out of my arm, well, <laughs> it was too many to count. That's, where I, that's why I decided not to go on. I just I couldn't 
Stan being among surgeons who had no interest in healing. It only had interest in income. I couldn't stand being among people who were supposed to be the saviors of society, the expert thinkers who were going to rescue mankind from its inevitable short-term catastrophes, uh, who had no interest in big-term issues or ethics or anything like that. I mean, all they were trying to do was grab brass root and get tenure and blaze away so there. So how did, you survive, how did you survive college then? Well, I survived college by focusing on developing my own mind, right? Just Just because I'm, you know... <laughs> I'm in a gym where everybody wants to sit around and watch Desperate Housewives rather than work out. Doesn't mean that I can't go over to the Dusty Weights and work out, right? Okay. And through that energy, a few people did end up, I did end up discussing. I was very lucky. I had a, a great roommate in college. Um, we were, you know, I was, I was so broke. I lived in one room with another guy. <laughs> I mean, that's because, you know, I just had no money. And uh, we actually ended up we're still we're still in contact, and um, uh, he was uh, he was a great roommate, and um, we had two great discussions. Uh, so b- because I was going and working out, some people were like, "Hey, I guess we could use those weights," uh, kind of thing, right? So, um, so you can do it, right? You, you just have to you have a, have to have a commitment and integrity to the development of your own mind, and a refusal to stay small, which is a scary thing. Right? As the old Japanese proverb goes, it is the tall poppy that gets cut down. It is the hammer that sticks up that gets pounded down. Right? As soon as you try to live large, you expose yourself to the various slings and arrows of outrageous, minuscule attack robots. Right. Right? But I mean, what, is the, what is the alternative? To live small and, and to lose out on the deep wine of life? I mean, no. No. Sorry. Not going to do it. One shot at this life. One shot at this life. I am not going to just wriggle around like a mouse at the feet of ancient jewel-encrusted dinosaurs and give them the right of way and refuse the natural evolution of the intellect of the species. I'm not, not, not going to do it. not going to do it. I refuse to do it. Now, living large means allowing for the universalization that is innate childhood to continue and to expand and to let it stop nowhere. However uncomfortable it makes people, sorry. Sorry, it makes you uncomfortable. But you all had 5,000 years or 10,000 years, if you can, religion of deep thought to sort this shit out. You didn't get to it. So sorry, you got to get busy now. Okay. So if you had the experience of, of shallowness, but you have a desire for depth. Then, is that, is that what well, leads to my lack of concentration? Is that what you're saying? I certainly think it's it's a, it's a real possibility. So, imagine that you are. What, what's your favorite sport? Um, I, I I like sports like snowboarding, if that counts. <laughs> okay, so what's that redheaded snowboard god? Uh, Sean White. Sean what? Sean White. Sean White. Okay. So imagine that, and, and how good are you at snowboarding? Um, not that great. <laughs> okay. So right. imagine that, imagine that Sean White is competing with you in a snowboarding race. How hard is he going to have to work? Uh, not as hard as I am. <laughs> well, he's not really going to have to lift a finger. 
Right. I mean, this guy has a private helicopter, private mountains, and he goes and practices, you know, eight hours a day, all that kind of crap, right? Right. And do you imagine that he would be fiercely concentrated on winning, or do you think he'd just be going down, going through the motions, knowing he's going to win, and thinking of other things? I think he'd be fiercely concentrated on trying to win. With you? Uh, well, he would still... Wouldn't he be applying that in, in all of the... in every time he's competing with somebody? No, I don't think so. I, I think okay. that competition raises our game, and if he if he simply knows that he's going to win. I mean, he just knows he's going to win. There's no possible... I mean, unless he gets hit by an asteroid, which, you know, which I'm sure he would... Uh, not anticipate he's he's going to win. Or imagine that you and I, how good are you at playing tennis? No, uh, I haven't played tennis in years. Okay, so I, I'm fairly good at tennis. And um, so let's say that you and I were playing tennis. And you missed the ball, you, you swung hard and your racket went flying and you fell over and so on, right? Would it be, would it be more likely in that situation that I would lose my concentration? Uh, no, it'd be more likely... Oh, yeah, it would in that situation because I'm not as... Good, I'm glad you backed that one out because otherwise... <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, what else are you thinking of if you can't answer this question correctly? Yeah, okay, yeah, so, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, would, I would be... My mind would be wondering because I'd be waiting for you to go pick up the ball. I'd know that it wasn't going to come back and if it did come back, it would be easy to hit and whatever, keep going into the net. So it's inevitable that I would lose that concentration. Now, if playing someone who is as good at or slightly better than I am or a lot better than I am, then I'm really concentrating. Okay. Right? Because it's a real challenge. Right. Now, if I was playing Roger Federer, or, you know, someone who's got one of these <laughs> howitzer serves that would probably just put a well through my chest, I'm actually only concentrating on not getting hit too hard by the ball. <laughs> Not really concentrating on trying to win the game, right? Right. And so concentration has something to do with with a balance, right? So if 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 you were sitting in a kindergarten class learning the days of the week, how how much would your concentration be affected badly, or would it be affected negatively? You mean if I was sitting in a kindergarten class in my current age? Yeah, you're now, and you're sitting in a class learning the days of the week. Uh, it would. I would be trying my hardest to think of something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, your mind wander, right? Now, imagine that you were, were put into a class uh, of advanced Japanese translation. Yeah, I don't how speak would, Japanese. How would your concentration go, right? I'd have to focus really hard to know what's going on. And I, well, I, no, I, you I, wouldn't know what was going on, as you don't speak Japanese, right? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, you would have no clue. I mean, you, you couldn't follow what was going on. Right. I mean, try try sitting down and watching a Korean film with no subtitles, and see how long your concentration lasts. Okay, I get I get what you mean. Yeah. Right. So where things are too easy or where things are impossible, our concentration wanders because we we can't do anything in those situations. I already know the days of the week, and I don't speak Korean. Okay. Does does that make sense? Sorry, I hope yeah, I'm no, not. I, to totally I hope I'm sense. not sounding no, impatient. I... I think you're doing fantastic, but I'm just trying to give you some circumstances or environments where concentration tends to wait right right so so it's dependent upon your ability on the current subject that you're tackling well actually that's that's partly true um but in the game of tennis which we were talking about i'm sorry the snow wasn't a great example but in the game of tennis we were talking about it depends on 
on two things. It depends on your ability and it depends on your tennis partner's ability. Okay. Did you see what I mean? What if you're playing singles, though? Wait, you, my tennis partner, do you mean opponent? No, so I'm, I'm an opponent. Yeah, your tennis okay. opponent. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, if there's a big disparity in skill sets with whoever you're playing with, your concentration is going to wander. Okay. And so the reason I'm saying this is if you have a desire for depth and truth and connection, intimacy, ethics, deep thought, real thought, big picture stuff, all the juice of life. And my concentration is going to be wandering in daily life, essentially. Well, it's going to be wandering in daily life if you're surrounded by people who are not only different, but opposed to this train of thought, as if there's any other. (laughs) Right? Do you understand? Yeah, no, I totally understand. And so uh, certainly, you know, concentration has something to do with willpower, you know, shake your head and, you know, we've all got to do our taxes and it's boring or whatever, right? And so that's... That's all fine. But there's a lot that you can do in terms of concentration in choosing your friends, right? If you're in college, obviously, there's a, lot. there's a big pool of friends to choose from. And I would really work in college to choose great friends because it, it really gets hard to make new friends after you graduate from college, unless you happen to go to a place with, in a work environment where you you know, meet people or whatever, but then they leave the job, you leave the job, they might move. I mean, I think college is a, is a great place to get friends. I'd really, really focus. If, if the challenges that you have in terms of concentration have something to do with not having people who are at the appropriate level of challenge, and I assume that it's almost always the case if you're really into philosophy, particularly if you listen to this show, it's almost always going to be the case that people are way behind you. Okay. So, you need to find people who are really interested in philosophy. doesn't mean this show or any, but really interested in thinking. They're eager to. And that's hard to find because we're all so relentlessly ground into this fine water goo paste useful for building the bricks of vanity for the upper classes. So it's hard to find people who've survived that with anything intact or even the desire intact to pursue these goals. But that would be my focus. Um, okay. Does that and and look technical challenges? I believe technical talent challenges won't do it. So let's say that you did want to learn Japanese. It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's a very cool thing to do, I think, but it's very difficult. But a high level of difficulty doesn't seem to be enough, uh, in my experience and opinion. But finding people you can really connect with will give you, I think, a real rush, a real ability. Like so, I think that we learn to train our brains in conversation, not just in isolation, not just in podcast list, listening or reading books, but in conversation is where we really learn how to train our brains. In the same way, if you want to learn how to play tennis, playing against a wall isn't going to do you much. It's not going to harm you, and maybe it'll help a little, but it's really not going to do much, right? Shadow boxing right. doesn't do anything about being in the ring with someone, really. It just, you know, trains your muscles a little bit. If you want to learn okay. how to win judo competition, you know, playing with the cardboard cut out of the Michelin man is not going to get you very far. So I think that we learn to train our brains in conversation with people, not in isolation. And isolation and listening to podcasts or reading books is all great. It really is. But I think the real rubber hit the road in conversation. Does that, does that make any sense? That, that, that totally makes sense, Stefan. Thank you. Uh, and how's your concentration been for the chat? 
Uh, it's it's been pretty good because it, it is the subject that I've been. I mean, I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time now. I just never got around to um, getting a headset mic and all that other stuff. But so so in that in that sense, it's something that I've been anticipating for a while, and so it's something that's easier to concentrate on because I've been really interested to see what you would say on the subject. Right. So, so I've definitely um, I've been following just, everything, and I. It's really interesting. Yeah, and you've, you've been doing a great job. Let me just give you a, a real summation, all right, just to make sure we get the major points home. Okay. Uh, so uh, boredom, isolation, uh, and, and a desire for bigness when there's only smallness around, I think is, has a lot to do with needing to self-stimulate when there's not enough external stimulation. I think that's important. And it happens the other way too. Right? So if you have some friend who's relentlessly shallow and you get together with a bunch of philosophy geeks and you all start talking about deep issues, her mind's going to wander or his mind is going to wander, right? Right. So it's finding an appropriate level of challenge and insight into your conversations that I think really helps train your brain to concentrate more. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to learn how to concentrate in isolation. Because you're trying to use, in a sense, your brain to fix your brain. You know, that's trying to, like trying to use a broken hammer to put a nail in. It doesn't, doesn't work that yeah. well, right? But okay. in conversation, in conversation with the right people. So I, I just really focus on trying to find people who are interested in any kind of depth. And they don't have to be that experienced. They don't have to listen to whatever or read a whole bunch of books or whatever, but just be interested in it. And so this is, I mean, you have to keep shooting out these flares of thought to see who's going to come. Right? Because our temptation is to shut down and to go internal with philosophy, right? To keep it to ourselves. For philosophy to be our brain porn, our slutty mistress, we keep tucked away in a super eight somewhere, right? And, but we have to. Um, we have to. Um, basically, I'm saying have porn as your screensaver. Uh, go to the library. <laughs> as soon as it's no, but I mean, uh, to, to continue to talk about ideas, uh, to continue to talk about big picture stuff, and you will find people who are interested. There are lots of people who are interested. I mean, I say this as a guy who you know, runs this show and blah, blah, blah. But keep talking about it. Because if they get you to shut down, then they neuter you. They win. Okay. And the future and the children and the world loses. Everybody wants you. Shut the fuck up and stay small. Okay. Shut the fuck up. We've got Snookies on TV. Go watch that Oompa Loompa give birth. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. Stay small. Worry about what Mitt Romney said in a goddamn speech. Right. Or even worry about the Federal Reserve. I mean, it happens in libertarian circles, too. Yeah. Worry about the corruption. What's Bernanke going to say this time? How much of our money yeah, is he going to gonna say this time? And how yeah. come my friends aren't listening to me about the gold standard and so on? To me, the, the, politics is small. Politics is tiny. Philosophy, virtue, right? Because people have, like, if you bring, oh, let's talk about the, the gold standard. And I like talking about the gold standard. I think this stuff's very interesting. But what you're saying to people is, let's have long conversations that are going to get very heated about something which we simply cannot change. Yeah. And people do a rational calculation. saying, well, no. <laughs> let's get back to Snooky, right? At least that's not <laughs> going to be contentious. Right? Yeah. Whereas if you talk to people about virtue, honesty, courage, integrity, living the good life in their own lives, things that they can actually change and affect, well, you'll get some hatred, you'll get some love, but you'll certainly get interest. Okay. And so keep talking about it. Everybody wants to 
stuff up the mouths of philosophers with hemlock of inconsequentiality. Don't let them do it. Don't let them take your soul. Don't let them crush you into nothing. Don't let them turn the mighty redwood of your intellect into a little bonsai of sheep-based compliance. Just don't do it. Uh, understood, Stefan. Right. So that's, that's my thoughts, and then I hope that, they, hope that they're helpful. Oh, that was very helpful. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a good All day. right. Have you, and uh, yeah, you drop me a line if you get a chance and let me know how it, uh, how it goes. Okay, I will. This, this won't be my last time I'm calling you. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Listen, you're welcome anytime. Great questions and uh, great thoughts. Thanks, Stefan. All right. All right. Next up, Steph meets Steph. Well, good morning, Steph. It's truly a pleasure. You um, are, in fact, F with an F, like a truly authentic, fresh-minted, uh, fruity, Poland-based name. <laughs> Two Fs as opposed to one, I suppose. Two um, Fs? Oh, yes. I feel uh, – no. I feel um, – I have F I have F envy. F, F envy, yes, yes. Um, well, right, hey, but, yeah, assuming I can uh, keep my mind from wandering, uh, a couple things that uh, I'd like to uh, uh, talk about. One of those is the institution of marriage. And uh, if you happen to hear a loud thud and the line goes quiet, it's probably because my wife hit me in the back of the head of a rolling pin or something of that nature. Um, I've been married for 16 years, and we have two kids. And, and I can remember prior to getting married, uh, wondering to myself, and this was before I had rather uh, more extreme anarchist thoughts, I suppose, or anti-status thoughts, that uh, what business was it of either the church or the government to – um, bless our relationship and somehow make it official. Um, that never particularly sat well with me. And uh, now, that being said, I, I, I certainly understand how incredibly important it is that there are uh, you know two parents involved in in raising children and the the tremendous value associated with that. Um, but was always uncomfortable with you know the state or the church having control over your relationship. And so I guess I'm wondering what are your thoughts on that in terms of um, the value there in what the state does in terms of making it incredibly difficult for people to divorce and what might um, a hypothetical free society look like in terms mm. of you know, uh, establishing long-term relationships maybe with a DIR, a DRO or, or something of that nature. Great questions. Um, well, I, I agree with you that the, the church gets heavily involved or religion gets heavily involved in marriages. Um, but I don't know that the state does. I mean, they give you a piece of paper, but they don't check up on you really. Right? I mean, so I don't think the state does uh, particularly get involved in, in marriage. But certainly the church does. Now, the state gets involved in your children's lives far more egregiously than the church does. I mean, the church, you, you know, Sunday school once a week maybe, but the state gets them for <laughs> – you know, six hours a day plus an hour of homework plus plus plus, right? So, uh, so the, the the church does not interfere with your children nearly as much as the state does, but the state does not interfere with your marriage nearly as the church does. So, sort of point that out as a. Yeah. Now, the reason for this is is simple, and I'm sure you know. I'm sure everyone knows it. I just mentioned it briefly. But you see, children are crops. Children are, you know, like why does a cow? farmer, why does a, a cattle farmer want his cows to breed? Well, so he will have more cows, which give him more meat, more milk, things he can sell, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, why does a, a farmer want to water his corn? Because he wants more corn. 
so that he can sell it to the government for ethanol rather than feeding hungry people. And so uh, the children are, to these institutions, they are, they are crops. They're crops. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear uh, if you look at, I mean, it's not even propaganda. It's just the way that, you know, children are talked about. I mean, they are, <laughs> it's very clear. The governments talk about it very openly. You know, we need to increase the birth rate because we have an aging population. I mean, they're very clear about it. They're just crops. And it's not because they care about the aging population. It's because they need money to give to the aging population to buy their votes. And if there aren't new children coming along, then, uh, you know, the farmer is running out of cows. Does, is it because he cares about the cows? No, it's because he wants his income. He wants his money. He wants to keep his And so, and this is why you have this horrifying paradox, really, of a lot of Christians uh, and other religious groups being very much against abortion, but not being against war. Well, surely an actual human life is at least as important, if not more important, than a blastocyst. But the difference, of course, is that war uh, creates unity on the home front. Uh, it, um, you know, that kind of loss and panic and fear has people running to, to gods. Uh, and uh, more importantly, of course, the blastocyst is Christian, whereas the victim of the war is often foreign. And so... Uh, so, yeah, this, this, you think of, of, I mean, it's just you're, you're planting a whole bunch of human beings in rows and you're growing them up to serve the state, to provide money for the state, to serve religion, to provide money for the priests. I mean, they're just crops. They're not individuals. Yeah. I mean, that's very clear because nobody ever asks children what they want. They just, you know, stuff them in church, stuff them in school and fill them with all kinds of propaganda. So I have to wonder if uh, part of the reason behind um, the state getting involved in marriage isn't perhaps that there is a financial incentive there to try to ensure that there's two parents around. Because if there's just one, uh, the chances are much more likely that you're going to end up with somebody that's going to be on more entitlements. Well, that's not bad. I mean, the government has no interest in, in two-parent families. In fact, I would argue that the government has every interest in at least some significant cohort of one-parent families. The reason for that is, remember, governments don't care about what happens to the kid in 20 years. Yeah. I mean, they don't. Obviously, if governments long-term, there'd be no such thing as the national debt. But what governments want is they want, they want kind of two things, right? So what they want is they want more people in the workforce and fewer people at home. Because when they're in the workforce, they're taxable, and when they're taking mm. care of their children, they're not taxable. That's true. They're lying fallow, so to speak. And <laughs> you could say, well, yes, but uh, this is sort of um, Phyllis Schlafly's argument, is to say, well, yeah, but the you know, parents who stay home, they raise children, and those children become more productive citizens than, the, you know, on average than the kids of single moms. But, but you know, politicians don't care about that. Don't care about that. Oh, in 15 years, you'll have slightly you know, better children. Well, they don't care. So uh, they want, uh, for two reasons, they want the women to go into the workforce because that's taxable, and they also want the people who now take care of the children to be taxable. You get two for one. You get two workers taxable for every woman who leaves the home to go to work, right? So whoever's mm -hmm. taking care of her kids, now sometimes it's grandparents or whatever, but for the most part, uh, it's, um, I think two-thirds of, of toddlers are in preschool in, in the U.S. For the most part, it's paid people. And so you ha the unions are happy because it's all government gets to regulate more, government gets their hands on them sooner and so on. And so, yeah, no, the, 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 the state has almost no interest in sustaining or maintaining families. Uh, and we have really for the last 40 years been engaged in a radical experiment, uh, a communist experiment, basically. I mean, the 
Communist yeah. Manifesto was very clear on state education of children and a substitute of the state for the family, and that has, to a large degree, been accomplished. Certainly in, in Europe, it's almost completely been accomplished, and in America, with the admirable holdouts of Christians uh, and some secularists, uh, it has been affected. I mean, you, and in particular communities, it's almost complete. Uh, three quarters of black kids yeah. growing up without a dad and so on. Instead of a dad, they have this. And so that's sort of the one benefit that you get everyone taxable, uh, which gives immediate benefits. Um, they get to hand out all of this uh, money. Uh, they get to control kids. Over. You know, the, the secondary benefit is that when those kids grow up, they're more likely to become criminals, and therefore uh, people need the state to protect them from the criminals that state policies have produced. So um, <laughs> just at a point that I might, that would be a correction that I would put forward, but I'm certainly happy to hear arguments to the contrary. Yeah. Um, no, no, I, I agree. Sorry, now, sorry, there was one other thing you mentioned I just touched well, on briefly. Why is it so difficult for people to get divorced? Well, the reason it's so difficult for people to get divorced is that lawyers run laws. Yeah. Right? I, I think it was uh, Neil, I can't remember his last name, the, the, the science guy, who was basically saying, everyone in Congress is a lawyer. Where are the scientists? Where are the entrepreneurs? Where yeah. are like, they all got legal training? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, this is a horrible monopoly on law, legal Bills in Canada are crazy. Four hundred bucks an hour. <laughs> I mean, because because they have a monopoly and they limit the entrance and they all rent seekers. And so, the reason why divorce is is so hard is because lawyers write the laws and lawyers like to write laws that make a lot of lawyers. What, what and then they like about, to restrict entrances. Sorry, go ahead. What, what do you think about the argument that that is a significant deterrent for divorce? What do you think about the argument that that is a significant deterrent to divorce? The, the cost associated with it and, and that sort of thing. Well, it obviously is some kind of deterrent, but it's clearly not enough of a deterrent because, you know, what's it, 50% of marriages end in yeah. divorce. It's not enough of a deterrent. I, I would just imagine that in, in an argument that people might make against a free society, uh, they might say that, you know, well, if there's no state to bless the relationship and bind two people together that, uh, you know, the likelihood of two parents actually sticking around uh, would be significantly less. Well, I mean, but to me, it's, it's a big picture question. It's a great question. And I'll just share my thoughts. You can tell me where you think they're landing close to the mark or not. Mm-hmm. But the only way to lower divorce, the only way to lower the breakup of families is for people to be less insane. See, incentives only work on people who are sane. And when people are crazy, incentives don't really work. That's sort of the definition of crazy is you don't rationally process yeah. incentives. And so, for instance. Yeah. Gun laws don't stop criminals. If, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> if I – well, and, and the death penalty does not lower the incidence of, um, of murder. Uh, so the states which have a death penalty have the same if not higher murder rates than the states which don't. Because once you're contemplating killing someone, you're kind of crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And so crazy people don't process consequences, which is why it's all about prevention, not cure, which is why we need a free society, not a status. So status societies are all about punishment, and free societies are all about prevention. But <clears throat> how do you lower the rate of divorce? Well, it's very simple. So imagine I was running a, a school for surgeons, a school for surgeons, and I, I trained surgeons for eight hours a day, seven hours a day for 12 years. And then when they came out, uh, half of their patients died. Would you consider that a good school? No. 
No, that would be a terrible school. Yeah. That would be an absolutely terrible school. And so the entire personalities, thought processes, uh, ethics, uh, community, communication skills, all of these are being trained by the state for 12 years, for seven to eight or more hours a day. And so we, we sort of, not, not we, but society as a whole, they just take government school out of the equation all the time. So all the people, almost all the people who are getting divorced went through government schools. So yeah. why are they getting divorced? Well, they're getting divorced because they've not learned how to communicate. Why have they not learned how to communicate? Because government schools are all about shut up, sit down, take notes. There's no negotiation. There's no back yeah. and forth. There's none of that, right? Yeah. And the same thing is to some degree true of, of religious institutions as well, right? Sit yeah. down, shut up, take notes. Plus, you go to hell, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... So there's not a lot of negotiation in school. I mean, I don't remember any negotiation in school to speak of. Yeah. And so, uh, it, you know, they're, they're not taught how to negotiate. And so then when they get into marriages, how, how, you know, they're also not taught values. Right? School, public schools have to be pro-state, but relentlessly neutral on philosophical values. Because you teach any philosophical value, you're just going to piss off some portion of parents who are going to storm yeah. and make your life difficult and so on, right? So they're relentlessly value neutral, but they teach obedience to authority. But the problem in marriage is that there is no authority. There's no, there's no state. There's no priest. There's no God who's going to – you have to adjudicate your own disputes. You have yeah. to learn how to negotiate horizontally, but hierarchical institutions just train kids to <laughs> stare out the window, yeah. to make indifferent notes, to cram their brains full of knowledge, spit it out, and move on. Teach you how to negotiate horizontally. Yeah. So, so basically, in, 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 kind of in, in summary, if I understand what, what you're saying, you know, if we didn't have the state to forcibly indoctrinate and propagandize uh, to people and, and make their behavior rather dysfunctional, um, if that wasn't there, then they'd be much more equipped to establish, you know, healthy relationships and actually maintain them uh, irrespective of the institution of marriage. Well, yeah, and, and then that would work in their business, right, businesses about negotiation uh, and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, what is, what is more important to the average person's happiness in life, uh, a successful marriage or a knowledge of vector calculus? <laughs> yeah, relationships, I think, are always more important. Of course, relationships, yeah, absolutely. But you will spend a lot of time in school learning all the lies of history, uh, learning yeah. geometry, uh, learning calculus, functions and relations, algebra, and so on. And these things are fine. I, you know, this is not a hate on for math or, or whatever, or science. But yeah. the majority of people don't become mathematicians. They don't become scientists. They don't become historians. And yet, yeah. we are pumped for thousands of hours of instruction in these things. And frankly, <laughs> if you've got any brains whatsoever, 90% of, of, of the math you need to do in life, you can kind of figure out on the fly if, if you have a calculator or a smartphone, or even if you don't, you can figure it out on the fly. And so you don't, you don't need all the but, – but what would help is there are very well-established ways to ensure that your marriage has the greatest chance possible. Uh, you know, and I've done a whole show on this, so I don't sort of get to you know, yeah. shared values and knowing how to negotiate and all that kind of stuff. And so you could teach people, you know, what I'd say is shave off 10% of 
of math studies, right? Or geometry st- or, or, or history studies. History, for God's sake, throw all that shit out because that's worse than – at least math is, is you know, some logic and well, history is all nonsense, right? So just shave 10% off that. You know, just, just toss 500 hours at how to have a good marriage, how to have a good relationship. But, of course, yeah. there's a reason why they don't do that, right? Yeah. What's that reason? I mean – in the moment, not, well, because the government needs bad marriages and so forth. Well, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a motivation from the government perspective. They just want indoctrinated sheep. And well, well, yes, but I would say, imagine this, right? So imagine that I'm a public school teacher. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. All right, so imagine that I'm a public school teacher and I go and talk about you know, a good marriage is one where you don't yell at each other. A good marriage is one where you don't call each other names. A good marriage is where you enjoy spending time with a good marriage, a good marriage, a good marriage, right? Well, that's that's not the nature of the relationship between the citizen and the state, though. There is no... Well, no, but forget that. What yeah. happens when the <laughs> 10-year-old kid goes home and sees his parents yelling at each other? Oh, yeah. What's he going to say? Well, he's going to say that that's not right. That obviously is not a good relationship when my parents are screaming at each other yeah so um, a teacher's my teacher staff says that you guys have a terrible marriage then what happens yeah. <laughs> well then the parents march into school and start yelling at the teacher yeah of course so, oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely that's why you can't have any standards or any bounds. so so until we raise people to be even remotely rational about relationships and to be exposed children to the language called negotiations. Everyone thinks that language is like words. Language is only partly words, and it's a very small part of language yeah. that is words, right? There's a language yeah. called peace. There's a language called negotiation. There's a language called honesty. All of these things are the form of words or the process yeah. of words, not just words in a row. And, and the grammar of peaceful interactions is something that is not taught among ch- children of forced school. They're, they're simply punished. They're not taught how to negotiate, and negotiation is actually... And, of course, because they can't negotiate, their peer relationships become based upon aggression and status and all that kind of primitive tribal chimpanzee crap. And anyway, I just want to sort of point that out. Uh, that ways. In a free society, you'd be taught all this stuff, and people would be sane to begin with, and people would have rational values to begin with. And so the incidents of divorce go away now. Yeah. And if, and if I may kind of use that as a segue into something else I wanted to talk about with regard to you know, We language. have a bunch of other callers, so let's, oh. let's keep this quick if you can. And my, my, my fault. Well, yeah, I, I, I do want to make this really, really quick. And, and it's sure. really – I've been kind of experiencing a, a, a bit of frustration with regard to examining the different types of isms in anarchism. Um, are you still there? Uh, can you – Oh, yeah, there. Sorry. I, yeah. I, my sound seemed like it went away there for a second. Um I, you know, that you, we've got uh, voluntarists, mutualists, anarcho-capitalists, agorists, you know, left and right libertarianism. Um, and whenever I start uh, trying to have an interaction with somebody who claims to be of a particular proclivity as far as uh, an anarchist is concerned, I get the impression that a very small percentage of those actually have kind of a unified definition of what it means to be a particular label. Um, and the same is also seems to be true of capitalism. Um, there's different groups that will define capitalism in completely different ways. Um, and I have to start wondering, you know, what is, is there any value in even trying to create these labels? And, uh, you know, even the, even the words uh, anarchism and capitalism, uh, both uh, for a lot of people have really bad connotations. I mean, <laughs> here locally in Tampa with the uh, local convention um, – 
Oh, you, you know, were at the, the belly of the beast, were you? Oh. Well, I live in Tampa. Yeah, I tried to stay away from that area. But uh, if you how watch many, the how many practicing lesbians were there that Pat Robertson identified <laughs> in the Republican caucus? Uh, because I, I'd pay to see that yeah. movie. Anyway, I, I have no idea. But but watching the local news, <clears throat> it was like they were absolutely terrified of the anarchists showing up and demonstrating because they were going to be, you know, incredibly violent and damaging all kinds of personal property. And I'm scratching my health. You know, head thinking, where do they get this from? I, you know, I suppose maybe the anarcho-communists of the early part of the last century uh, were, were pretty involved in uh, violence. Uh, but there seems to be so many different flavors of uh, anti-statism, which seems to be the broader categorization of of anarchism. Um, but then you got people saying, well, uh, you know, capitalism is good, and others are saying, well, capitalism is bad, and they make a distinction between that and entrepreneurs. Um, I. What are your thoughts on kind of all that label? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I get told all the time that I'm not a real anarchist, which I would agree with. I'm a, I'm actually a human being. Uh, anarchy is there's no such thing as being a real anarchist. Uh, that's like a concept walking around. It doesn't doesn't happen. So, but the reason we care about what other people believe is because we have a state. And I would love to live in a world where I don't particularly care what my neighbors think. And let's say that my neighbors are involved in a charitable organization that I think is not particularly great. You know, maybe it uh, finds behavior that is changing people's cost-benefit calculations to have them have more kids or whatever. I don't know, right? But just some – and uh, if they're trying to impose this on me using the state, then I care. If they're just doing their thing, I may talk to them about it. I may not. I mean, it doesn't have the same level of urgency to me because they are, right? I mean, so the reason – we have this state which allows us to violently impose our beliefs on other people. And because of that, we really care about what other people think. And it becomes incredibly important for us to convince other people. But if you don't have a state and you can't violently and universally impose your beliefs on people – I think there's a whole lot more of live and let live. Yeah. And also, because of the state, people escape the consequences of their own actions and their own beliefs. So I, I believe, you know, there's this philosophy of parenting, um, a non-interventionist non philosophy of parenting, which I'm sort of exploring, which is to say, if your kid hits another kid, you don't sort of run over and negotiate. And, and but basically, you just the other kid not want to play with your kid and they experience the consequences. And then they're like, OK, well, if I hit a kid, he won't want to play with me. And therefore... Right. I mean, personally, I think that's still too far, but it's a very interesting idea. What are the consequences uh, of behavior? Now, of course, if you have the state, then you have the capacity to escape the consequences of your own behavior. If I want to go start a war in a free society, um, you know, I'm going to be ostracized. I'm not going to have access to weaponry. No, it's, it's going to be like I'm going to be like a crazy guy. No one's going to want to have anything to do with me. So I'm going to experience negative consequences. In a state society, you get statues and you get to have your grinning idiot head on a stamp right so you, you don't you you escape the consequences of your actions if i want to spend all my money now and not save for my old age i'm going to have a pretty impoverished old age but in the state you can escape the consequences of these actions so because the state is there we're all scared of what everyone else believes because they're going to impose it on us and also we are uh, we get to, the natural consequences of bad decisions and, and irrational thoughts do not accrue to the individuals 
right, as Brian Kaplan says in The Myth of the Rational Voter, what are the negative consequences of holding irrational political beliefs? Well, <laughs> so anyway, I just want to uh, point that out. I, I, we only have these labels because there is a state. Uh, if there was no state, uh, you know, it would be, uh, you know, well, things will yeah. get more rational over time because the rational stuff that isn't subsidized tends to change fairly quickly. And, uh, and so they, that would be And to some extent, they kind of seem like a useful tool to be able to find other people in the general community that have, uh, you know, similar sets of principles. Uh, what do you mean? Well, um, like if I want to find other people that have the same uh, moral basis that I do, um, I, and I could establish that, okay, in our, the, the closest thing to what I believe is anarcho-capitalism, then mm-hmm. it, just the, the label itself, finding other people that uh, you know, make the claim that they're anarcho-capitalists, uh, could be helpful. And, and kind of yeah, establish up front that, be. hey, we have very similar sets of beliefs uh, and moral basis. So there's a good chance we'll get along really well. Yeah, and that certainly is, uh, that certainly is, is helpful for sure. But yeah, I want to point out that the state has completely retarded the natural evolution. I mean, ethics and, and philosophy should be advancing faster than science, you know, yeah. physics, medicine, biology, and so on. But instead, it has been stuck. And the reason it's stuck is because the state... Um, shields people from consequences. Um, you know, it's like the same way that the state supports zombie companies, just keeps them alive with endless bailouts and subsidies and so on. Uh, the state supports bad ideologies um, by continually subsidizing it and preventing all of the alternatives from coming into being. And this is why we have this weird paradox that, you know, technology, science, medicine, they shoot forward like rocket sleds and ethics just are completely stuck because ethics just remains a government program. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank uh, you. Let's move on to the next uh, next caller. I really appreciate that. Great question. Uh, next up, we have Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Can you Hello. Hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Um. Yeah. My, my question today is: Well, I remember in a podcast a while back, or I think it might have been the talk you gave, like you. Uh, Talked about fucking up evil people as uh, in a polite way, I guess. But uh, I was curious if you had any. Uh, I can go into more uh, details, but I'm curious if you made any advancements in that uh, that realm. Did you? So did you say fucking up evil people? Yes. I'm not sure. I. That you may need to flesh that quote out a little bit. Uh, although they. I think it might have been. Uh, I think it. Remember, it was from like the something to do like the against me argument, but uh, like just a desire in some point to like find a way to like fuck up evil people in not a fucking up way. Like, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess I could explain more. Um, like I have someone in my family that uh, sexually abused someone and I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. I mean, they're like, I mean, I've contacted police and maybe this is like, wait, too much to be talking about on a internet uh, show, but uh, I'm just uh, curious on the thoughts. Like working with law enforcement seems difficult at times. I imagine that it is. Um, I don't. Yeah, I, I think that may be a little bit more than I want to sort of bite off on a on a Sunday morning. Maybe we could have another chat about it um, uh, privately. But mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's, and that probably wasn't exactly what I was talking about with the against me argument. I mean, the against yeah. me argument, um, which I still fully stand by and deploy, uh, is, um, for those who don't know, it's basically saying that people who support the state support the use of violence against you disagreeing with them uh, yeah. on issues where they feel the state is involved. Uh, yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how that would work in this kind of egregious and immoral situation so i think i'll have to maybe postpone this maybe i'll think on it some more maybe we can talk again you can shoot me an email but i think i'll have to um skip that one for today if that's all right and i really do i really do uh, uh, i'm very sorry that this has come into your life i mean what a what a desperately terrible terrible situation uh, and you know what a desperately common situation this uh, uh it really is just astounding uh, how you know how often this happens and uh you know, I was reading statistics says the average pedophile goes through hundreds and hundreds of victims before uh, he, usually he or she, is caught. And you look at the Sandusky trial and the uh, amount of sexual predation in public schools from teachers and the amount of sexual predation, which is far less, in the church uh, from particular priests and the degree to which it's covered up. Yeah, sometimes okay. I, I mean, sometimes I succumb to the rather dark thought, which is only a thought, I succumb to the rather dark thought that uh, society is you know, all organized around the rape of children and everything else is just kind of a detail. Uh, and um, <laughs> I just wonder about that uh, sometimes. But um, Yeah, I'm sorry for like, bringing up something that might be too much for this. Uh, no, no, this don't, don't apologize. Look, I mean, I, I appreciate you, you talking about it. It's a, it's a very big and powerful topic. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm always concerned because I just would not want you to go into into public with with a level of detail that you may be uncomfortable yeah. with at some point, or other people may. So yeah. uh, maybe we can talk about it privately. You can shoot email if you have more thoughts. But uh, I think I'll move on now, if that's all right with you. Oh yeah, that's great. Thank you. All right. All right. <clears throat> Up next, we have Anthony, who works in a grocery store. He's saving his pennies. Oh. I always think of that song as well. Well, because I was working in a grocery store when I first heard that. Oh, were you really? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. At the bottom of my street. Uh, it was kind of really ironic in a way. <laughs> and I was actually saving to move out of my parents' house as well. Oh, he's saving it's, his buddies for someday. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, you can't real... with a broken back. No, I like. I, I, I'm quite a big fan of Billy Joel. I mean, okay, he's, I love, he's I love white his bread, stuff. but he's he's good white bread, and what a fantastic singer! You know, he's one of the few guys whose voice I believe has actually improved with age. Like I heard him the other day on YouTube, like from a concert from a year or two ago, doing uh, his song "Honesty," and it's like, oh my god, All right. he had a great voice when he was younger, but holy crap, did he have an incredible voice uh, now? Yeah, now, like... which is unusual. Freddie Mercury, towards the end of his career, just pushed himself more and more in the vocals. He got really kind of rough and um, changed. Oh yeah, well, really. he took a spray paint to his Mona Lisa by being a very heavy smoker, which obviously oh. I no, I'm no big fan of state power. But <laughs> in terms of making it illegal for Freddie Mercury to have smoked, because I liked his voice so much, uh, that oh, is with not... one exception. You know, everybody has one exception that they would make, and that would be Mike's. Right. Did you not like the vocals? In the late stuff. Well, it wasn't so much I didn't like the vocals in the late stuff. I just thought that the songwriting had lost some of its imagination. I mean, one of the things I love about Queen is is their virtuosity in a wide variety of musical forms, right? I mean, they did rockabilly, they did did, did jazz, they did um, uh, folk ballad, they did epic rock, they did ballads, they did everything that you could name. They they did ragtime, they did, I mean, it's crazy, crazy 
variety when they were younger. And I just sort of felt that when the songs, um, that it, it, one of the challenges, you know, I try to learn as much as I can from Queen. And <laughs> I think one of the challenges is the degree to which you're willing to push yourself to remain creative and to not rest on your laurels. And I think that uh, they could have. Definitely. Of course. Yeah, they're facing a lot of challenges when they get older. But I mean, if you if you look at things like News of the World or Day at the Races or Night at the Opera and compare it with Innuendo or Made in Heaven, yeah, it's not the same. I like I, same I like I love the singles of Innuendo, but not the album tracks. My favorite, the first five albums as well. Well, the first one. And sorry, we're talking. We're, no, we no, wait. I really mean, look. Okay, so an Innuendo. Uh, uh, you know, if if if. If the greatest frontman, and I would argue one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, comes forward and says, okay, guys, I've got a song. It's about my cat. And one of the lines is, um, I get kind of annoyed when you pee all over my Chippendale furniture. I, I just, I'm just not sure that that would be <laughs> necessarily number one. Uh, but, you know, I mean, obviously the guy, you know, was, had AIDS at the time and he was uh, not having a, uh, a good there's a day's um, I don't remember that particular song. Oh, it's called Delilah. Uh, it's it's the song that Freddie oh, wrote right. about his cat. Uh, and, oh, really? and you make me pretty mad when you pee all over my Chippendale sweet Delilah. <laughs> I mean, it's just a. I mean, it's a fun song. My daughter quite likes it, and the vocals, of course, are. Mm. I mean, impeccable. But um, I don't know. Playing Twinkle Twinkle on a Stradivarius doesn't make the song a whole lot better. Anyway, so I just want to mention. That, uh, that's cool. I'm glad I didn't listen to that album too much in that case. Well, um, first of all, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. I've been listening to your stuff for a few years now. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a real help along. Um, oh, good. So thank, thanks very much for that. Um, I, was, uh, I live in, in Glasgow in Scotland. Oh, you visited there once, you said, I'm sure. I did. Uh, I actually took um, entrance exams to go to school in Scotland and uh, also visited Brie, the town on the, I'm trying to remember, I was like six or something, <laughs> five, but Brie, the town uh, on the coast. Uh, where we, yeah, we were going to move to Scotland and uh, then at some point we ended up moving to Canada and so, yeah, we were looking at uh, the surrounding <laughs> colonies. Anyway, so go ahead. Um, yeah, so in Scot Scotland, well, in Glasgow, there, I mean, the political ideology is 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 pretty pretty left wing, um, and there's a kind of prevailing mentality which is, you know, if you're a socialist, you're a good guy, you know. Yeah. If you you care about people and you're you know you're involved and and you you care about the the state of the world, <clears throat> and if you're a conservative, you're evil, and there's yeah. there's no libertarian tradition at all. Like there there's. I mean, a couple. Well, of I'm not people counting Adam Smith, who did come from your fair. That is That is true. Um, that's a good point, and um, he he's also seen as a as a great liberal as well, though, um, because I think well, he seemed to his idea of the free market has seemed seemed to have been different from um, what. It's considered to be the free market today. I think that um, um oh, I had I had sorry. no. Let me not, not distract I'm you with a discussion on Adam Smith, but yeah, he's quoted yeah, yeah. lovingly by Noam Chomsky, so he obviously wasn't yeah. I was thinking passages. about the Noam Chomsky quote. That's right. The the oh yes, I I would like to give the free market of Adam Smith a try if if you could have such a thing. Yeah, I heard that too. Sorry, 
Um, but yeah, basically, um, I was thinking about the kind of responses that um, you might get from the kind of people I knew at uni. Um, um, and, you know, they might say something like, well, you know, Stefan, uh, you, you were an entrepreneur, so, so you have a very um, a skewed view of the, of the free market. What the, what the free market's like for most people is like working in a call center or a factory. It's boring and soul-destroying. And, you know, society doesn't have to be organized in a way where people have to do boring and soul-destroying work. It could be a great big community love fest of joys and daisies and roses and skipping through the park. Well, I I agree with a lot of that. <laughs> but, of course, I wasn't born an entrepreneur, right? Mm. I had yeah. endless rounds of terrible jobs that I won't list off here because make everyone fall asleep but so i definitely saw that side for sure Mm. that made me a better boss oh yeah oh well that that makes sense and and again like i wouldn't say that it was being leveled as a personal criticism of you it would be an argument for um some some society that wasn't um arranged around the principles of the free market no, sorry, but let, let me just respond because, because people say this right a lot, and obviously mm. not just to me, but to, to lots of people. They say, "Well, Steph, you have these beliefs because, right, right," which is you know it's amateur psychologizing, and actually it, it gets to avoid the the actual facts of the matter. Yeah, it's not an argument. No, no, people say, "Well, Steph, uh, uh, you are anti-family because you had a bad childhood." I'm like, well, yes, I had a bad childhood, but there's still arguments about voluntarism within the family that need to be addressed. Now, yeah, if my arguments true. are proven false, if my arguments are proven false and I still cling to them, then I think it's, if anyone had the interest, they could figure out why from a psychological standpoint. But you don't start right. off, and not you, but one doesn't start off by saying, well, Steph, you believe in the free market because you were an entrepreneur. It's like, well, <laughs> how on earth would you prove that? And what, what does that have to do with my arguments? That is... True. Now, um, sorry, the I, second thing I would say to that person is, so would you say that the majority of young people have a pretty bad jobs? Um, the majority of young people have pretty bad jobs. Just pretend to be your friend. I, uh, well, I mean, what do you mean by young people? Do you mean of university kind of age or younger still? Well, when they finish their education, whether that's high school or uni or whatever, do, do they mostly don't have great jobs, right? No, no. Right. So let's just say somebody graduates from high school and they get a job in a call center, right? Right. And you consider that to be the fault of the free market or is somewhat responsible for the free market? The, yeah, I, oh, the thing no, is they would the, say yeah. they would say that it has something to do with it, right? But my argument yeah, yeah. would be, well, how, uh, how on earth can you blame the free market for the fact that after 12 years of government school, they have so few skills that they're only valuable at four quid in a call market, in a call center. I, yeah, I, I agree. In fact, I mean, the government I, has had them for twelve years. It is. I mean, if the government had taught these people to be surgeons, they wouldn't be working in a call center. If the government had taught these people how to raise capital, how to fund a business, how to grow a business, how to market, how to, they wouldn't be working in a call center. If the government had taught them anything of any economic value. I mean, you taught how to, how to write and to do arithmetic. 
And that takes about a year. And the rest of it is 11 years of brain-switching propagandistic bullshit that has you come out of 12 years of education with the ability to answer a fucking phone. So don't blame the free market when the government has complete control in your socialist paradise over the education, the infusion of economic value into these children and to these young adults. Then these young adults come right out of your socialist paradise and are so useless to employers that they're only going to make a couple of quid an hour answering telephones and reading call prompts, which frankly they probably could have done in grade four or grade three. So it's your socialist paradise. It's your communist paradise that has produced these economically flaccid non-entities who are worth nothing in the free market. Don't blame the free market for putting an accurate price on the crap that your socialist system produces. Sorry, you're breaking up just a bit. Oh, sorry, can you hear me better? Yeah, go ahead. They'd have criticisms of the educationists I volunteered in a school for a while earlier this year, and um, I was hoping that it would have got better. Um, in some ways, it is, but I have to say that they're teaching is do what you're told when you're told, and any any education is just a bonus on top of being less than. I mean, I tried to get influence, and I was a lot of so difficult somewhere that difficult with me because uh, I had them upset. Yeah, no, but see, but the socialists will always say we haven't had enough time and we don't have enough money. That's what the socialists will always say about their programs. We we don't have enough. We haven't had enough time, or we don't have enough money, or there are uh, there are reactive elements in the system that is causing it to fail. Right? That the capitalists are sabotaging the uh, the Russian harvest or whatever. And I mean, you you could make that case with vague credibility about lots of things, but you can't make that about public school. I mean, governments have had hundreds of years to get public school, right? They have more money now than was ever dreamt of, even remotely dreamt of when public schools were founded. So they have way more money than they ever thought, and they've had 150 years plus to get it right. So the idea that more time and more money is going to solve things is is just bullshit. Their argument would be that the education system set up that way to serve the capitalists. Well, then why isn't it serving the capitalists? Why isn't it producing people with more value? You see, capitalists want to pay you more. They want to pay you more. And the reason they want to pay you more is that they can charge more for you. So would you rather have the income of a mail clerk or the income of a lawyer? Would you rather sell the services of somebody who would mow a lawn or would you rather sell the services of somebody who could do root canals, right? So to be able to, the the capitalists want to sell your labor. The more valuable your labor is, the more they can sell it for. So capitalists want you to be as economically productive as possible because it's profitable for them. It's more profitable for them. Mm. And so there's no way that it serves the capitalists. I mean, it serves, you I mean, I sort of made the argument earlier in the show that it serves the capitalists who don't want competition and blah, 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 but you know, but the idea that the, uh, and the other thing I would ask, so it doesn't work economically or logically, but also, um, I would also ask, if it serves the needs of the capitalists, why is it that the people with the most power in the educational system are the public sector unions? Those are not capitalists, right? They are a socialist construct within a socialist system funded by forced taxation. So if it is the agenda of the capitalists that is running the public school system, why are all of the decisions made 
by the public sector unions and politicians and school boards, which are not capitalists. I mean, this is how you know somebody's just propagandizing. They're just saying whatever they can say to rescue a corrupt and failed ideology because it only takes a moment of thought. Oh, where is this great puppet master that gets to control everything? Well, <laughs> it's the, the unions and the, uh, the school boards and the politicians, uh, but it certainly isn't, uh, you know, uh, it isn't the capitalists. In fact, a lot of the capitalists, yeah, they're quite against the public school system. I mean, Bill Gates has been working for years to try and improve things in the public school system because he's so frustrated because, because they, you know, Microsoft has to go overseas to get remotely competent engineers, and it's a very big overhead and expense for them. They would love homegrown talent. They would love, you know, why, why the call centers go to India? They would love to have people that they didn't have to train in colloquialisms and pretend they had a different name. They would love local people that wouldn't have sponsor and do all the paperwork to have them come over. Uh, so the capitalists are not happy with the state of education because they want um, skilled employees and they just can't find them. I think it's a good opportunity to, to argument and to the um, because if, um, Oh, I'm so sorry. I think we're going to have to move on to another yes. caller. You know, you're, uh, you're breaking up really bad. Really, I can't hear you at all. I'm really sorry. Thanks very much for taking my call, um, Yeah, let's, let's try it again. I, I know we're not finished, so let, let's try it again. It's a great topic, but um, I just don't right. want to have to end up spending all night editing. So, All right, if we oh, can move on to the next one. Okay, up next we have Dan. Hey, what's up, Steph? Um. As Norm says in Cheers, my nipples, it's pretty cold outside. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, I just had to rush down the stairs. I had to go clean up something real quick. I heard my name. I'm like, no, run. No. <laughs> it's going to meet you. It's my first time doing this. Kind of static oh. right at the moment. No problem. Good to meet you, Tim. What's on your mind? Um, how do you feel about um, direct action? You know the uh, Gaza Strip incident with the flotilla? The Israeli commandos attacking it? How do you feel oh, I, I saw I saw a little bit about that. Can you can you explain it more? I don't know the details. Um, I believe it was a uh, human rights uh, like mission to go help the people of Gaza because there's like forty there's like forty thousand children and like about twenty to thirty thousand other people like the adults and like they had no they were basically closed off and they couldn't sell their crops or anything so they were trying to get uh, supplies there like cement. And other like construction equipment to um, help them out there, and to try to open up a trade supply from Aloha Raza, I believe it was. And Israeli commandos um they attacked the flotilla around like two thirty in the morning, and they basically took over the ship. Nine people were killed, and like like the three commandos were captured by the people on the ship, but they let them go. Let's see what else. I just watched it like last week, I, and um, they basically uh, tortured and uh, some of the uh, ship people, and basically shipped them back to Turkey, because that's where they left and departed from. They had like six ships. Actually, they had um, originally nine, but they had to go with six. Let's see. And they basically lost all. Sorry, the flotilla left left from Turkey. I thought it was, but it was full of Palestinians. Is that right? I think so. It might have been. It was a mix. Because they was like a, um, they did like a black market thing. They didn't really do it out in the open. And I guess they might have heard it from the inside. From um, <laughs> they broke it up from the inside. Right. All right. And uh, what's your question? 
What's my question? You said, what do I think of direct action? I'm not sure what that means. And how do you feel about, um, like, helping people out in direct action, like, uh, helping people, like, um, being the first in line to go help someone, like a missionary mission, like going to, like, Africa to go help the sick or something like that, but you can't, but there's no um, government intervention, they won't allow you, so you have to do it yourself, like, for private means, but they didn't let them pass. Basically, since the Israelis told them to turn back, but they didn't. They just kept going. And was it because they were trying to bring some help to the Palestinians? I believe so. Uh, they think they were training a um, like an army there. They had they, they thought they had like a commander on the ship to train them. It's silly. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not really sure what what the question is. I mean, I think the Palestinians are in a desperate situation. I think uh, you know. I, <laughs> The, the question of why the Palestinians had to pay for what the German government did uh, is, is still a mystery that no amount of reason will ever solve. And, um, I mean, the whole mess is the result of religion. I mean, the, the Holy Land, they went back. And, of course, the Jewish leadership likes to have a home in a place surrounded by enemies so they can create a perpetual state of revenue-generating emergencies and so on. Um, I mean, that having been said, what I love about the Jewish culture is the degree to which it shows the potential for human achievement. I mean, the Jewish culture is fantastic for producing uh, brilliant people, and that to me is very inspiring. But um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a mess. I mean, the the only short-term solution is is uh, statehood. I mean, everybody accepts that. Uh, but according to the Jewish people I've talked to, even on this show, uh, there's an older generation that that has to kind of fade into the woodwork before the younger generation can implement that, which everybody knows needs to be done. And um, it's it's wretched. I mean, it is. It is the apartheid that nobody can speak of, right? I mean, it's uh, it's the usual uh, uh, nonsense, and uh, it's just it's tragic. You know, I I feel sorry for the Palestinians. Um, I feel sorry for the um, the Jews, in particular the Jewish boys who are uh, circumcised. Uh, it is um, you know it's uh, it's just wretched. Uh, it's it's just awful, and you know this polarity in the Jewish culture, this extreme focus on achievement of rationality and achievement of rationality in many ways outside of theology in science, medicine, and so on is all based upon rationality, which is great. And there is, you know, this, this parallel religiosity or, or cultural superstition and so on. And it's, it's quite a dichotomy uh, in, in, in the, you know, at least the Muslims are like, wow, we're really into the religiosity side and much less into the science and achievement side. But the Jews are much more more split, and I think that's really quite quite interesting. But yeah, it's a, it's a it's a tragic situation, and it is entirely based, I think, upon religiosity. And uh, it is, uh, you know, I don't I don't see any particularly short term solution to it. Uh, philosophy is, of course, about long term solutions. It's nutrition, not not uh, CPR. And what philosophy, I think, has to say about it is that. Irrational beliefs produce disasters, and irrational beliefs that are violently imposed impose catastrophes, even worse than disasters. And so I think that the task of philosophy and of the philosophical is to keep pointing out that uh, these beliefs are irrational, that they're false, uh, that governments don't exist, that uh, gods don't exist, uh, that cultural beliefs must be subject to rational scrutiny, and it doesn't matter if you put on a funny hat while you're dancing – but it does matter if you believe that you're the chosen race and that everybody else is um, utility. Uh, so I think we just have to keep patiently pointing these things out. It's a multi-generational change. Nobody's anticipating it's going to change quickly, but that's, I think, the most that can be said about that from a philosophical standpoint, at least for me.
Yeah, I agree with that. It's gonna take some time, even even after I'm long dead. So it's gonna take forever. It might not take forever. You just gotta be optimistic and just keep on tooting your horn. Other places can use. Yeah, you know, you you never know. You never know when these things are gonna collapse. I mean, it it can happen quite quickly. Uh, I mean, it can happen quite quickly if you look at some of the falls of of totalitarian states, even those that seem quite invincible. Uh, it, you know, I mean, I'm not comparing the the Jewish, uh, the, the Israeli state with with these two totalitarian states. I mean, I understand it's one of the freest states in the region and so on. But if you look at the Chinese communism, if you look at Indian socialism, if you look at Soviet communism, I mean, these things reverse themselves extremely quickly. And it, it, it's, I mean, most people, they, they don't have any beliefs of their own, right? They're just feathers in the breeze. Anyway, the wind blows. And so if the elites and their cultural lapdogs decide to change course, then the narrative gets rewritten in true 1984 fashion. We are now at war with Eurasia. We have always been at war with Eurasia. It gets rewritten and people would just go along with it. They won't really have any memory of the past thing. Uh, you know, it's like watching the Republicans rail against Obamacare uh, and then nominating a guy who implemented pretty much the same thing in his home state. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it's because they want power, they want to win, they want a tribalism. It's got nothing to do with any kind of reason and evidence. So uh, if the elites realize that the existing system isn't going to work, they will change that system. And the narrative in the media will change instantly because the media are the lapdogs of the political and economic powers that be. And then everybody will just change direction and nobody will ever imagine that there was a different direction. And everybody who brings that up will be ridiculed and, you know, we'll just move into a new kind of marching order with no memory of the past. I mean, we, we are a strange species at the moment. We are incredibly distorted. We are incredibly blinded. We live like bubbles in a storm, just trying to ride the wings of power and imagining that we are somehow self-directed. Uh, people are just surfing uh, the bloody wave of, of power and control, trying to survive an environment that is increasingly irrational and brutal on the mind and on the finances, and pretending that we all have responsibility. And um, like I was reading the other day about some guy who was like, oh, you know, kids these days, yeah, the economy's tough, but man, it was tough for me when I graduated school in the early 90s and I did what I could to get a job and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, you can still get work and, and so on, but the idea that the current recession is anything like what happened in the early 90s. I mean, it's just diluted. And people don't want to look at those facts because that means yeah, that the they really have to. Yeah, the 90s were sort of booming. Like, well, in the early 90s, there was a crash. I mean, I graduated from yeah, college. I couldn't them. get a job of, uh, anything. Clinton. Well, because of, right, I mean, there's lots of reasons that are mostly due to Federal Reserve spending and the fact that the government was paying for everything through debt gives you an artificial boom. You know, same way I can go buy a bunch of stuff if I don't care about my visa bill next month. I can go buy a whole bunch of stuff and I look wealthy. But, <laughs> yeah. but the reality, of course, is that you know, I think nine million jobs were added in the year or two after the crash of of the early nineties, and the, the the job recovery has been below replacement levels. It's, it's been below what people. You need one hundred and fifty thousand jobs created every month just to take care of people coming into the workforce. It's not even been close to that. So, you know, the idea, you know, buck up, kids. You know, I did it. You kids these days are spoiled. They're just, no, 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 no. Human nature. I shouldn't say that phrase. Um, <laughs> Human responses to environment hasn't changed that much in 20 years. The environment has changed, and young people want to get started in their lives. They want to get jobs. They want to get moving just as much as everyone else. But the economy, just you know, all you have to do is look up the statistics of job recovery between the two, and you recognize that you know, kids these days are facing 
an incredibly different environment than they used to. Not to mention the fact, of course, that school has become uh, much more expensive, that the prevalence of higher education has increased, which means each um, degree is worth less. Uh, and you know, just put all of this. And, and also the quality of education, right? The people who were graduating in the 90s, they went through school in the 70s. Now, school in the 70s was not as craptastic as it is today because it was in the 1960s that the teachers' unions gained the power to never be fired and really put the lockdown on all the crappy teachers that they were going to milk like bloody cows for the rest of their natural-born lives. And so, like everything, like, like NASA puts a man in the moon and then doesn't change the design of the spaceship for the next 40 years, the first generation is not so bad uh, for the socialized, whatever it is, and then the second generation, third generation, is much worse. School now is way worse than it used to be in the past. And so people who came through school in the 70s still had the benefit of teachers who were there because they really wanted to be teachers and not because they wanted, you know, comfortable, real fat and pension and healthcare benefits for the rest of their lives and the desire not to get fired and all of the culture that goes along with that. And whereas, you know, so whereas the people in the 90s, I mean, the people, the teachers from the 70s had to some degree or even largely retired and or at least were just relics or had been corrupted by the system uh, and so yeah the education was much worse uh, and of course um yeah the kids who are graduating now would have been in the mid-90s that i guess that they were in uh that they would coming out of high school now and so yeah, it's a very different environment you know 1970 to 1995 was 25 years of intense socialism and final seal up the final biosphere seal up of children in a frankly communist environment and that has a huge effect on the quality of education. So, again, people just want to say, oh, well, you're kids these days and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, you know. I remember two years ago when I was in a high school. It took me a few years to graduate. I had, and um, it, was so, it was socialistic. I could see it. It was scary. And I'm starting to see it now. I'm looking back like, wow. I was like sort of indoctrinated in like social medicine. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Let's help the poor and the sick and people who don't have the opportunity or the money. But now I'm looking back like, no, we need... We need the economy. We need um, to use our heads and break the chains of that. How um, hospitals are not like privatized anymore. They're like socialists. Like we need to be innovative and um, be able to help more people. Like this, like, yeah, and know. it's it's really tough to use the same words. I mean, this is why I always have a tough time saying public schools as opposed to coercive schools, communist schools, um, and even the use of the word schools is tough. I mean, school is associated with education, learning, volunteerism, and so on. That's what school is generally considered. It's not considered a violent institution, right? You say army, people get, you know, it's about violence. You say school, people think that it's you know, about learning and reading, writing, arithmetic, and so on. But it's, it's a, I mean, language is another government program, and it's very confusing to talk about these things. We don't even have the words for it. Like, we don't have a good word for volunteerism yet. But we don't have a good word for what it is. Like, we don't just say lovemaking is, is, um, is private rape. No, we don't, because if it's rape, it's not lovemaking. We don't say that rape is public lovemaking. No. If you put the word public in front of it, it doesn't reveal the true nature of what it is. The only difference between lovemaking and rape is the violence, is the coercion, is the brutality. That's the only difference. If it's voluntary, it's lovemaking. If it's involuntary, it's rape. And that's why we have completely different words with completely different and opposite emotional connotations. Lovemaking is a wonderful and beautiful thing, and rape is a monstrous evil crime. But we have, you know, we have yeah, these words that have been invented, public-private, 
which have nothing to do with the reality. The only difference between public and private schools, I mean, outside of the unions and all that, but the only difference is that one is voluntary and the other is violent. It's lovemaking and rape. We have opposite words. But we use the word school and then we just put the word public and private when what we mean is free and violent, right? So violent indoctrination camps versus voluntarily chosen educational facilities. But again, there's no good word for it because the government has created this public-private to indicate that it's just you know two flavors of ice cream, two different shades of paint, two different ways of getting things done. Whereas if so, if you could you know if if rape was simply public lovemaking, and lovemaking was simply private lovemaking, well, it sounds like they're both lovemaking because <laughs> you've embraced the coercion. That is the essence and the only difference between these two interactions. And so it's really tough to, to have even a discussion about these things because the words, you know, again, this is the 1984 thing. The words don't exist. Uh, that's why, you know, we, we don't say um, taxes are, are public theft, whereas, you know, shoplifting is private theft. But we have to invent the word taxes and social contract and obligation and caring for the poor because it's all about covering up the violence that is the essence of what is, is the only thing that's different. The only thing that's different between donations and taxes is the gun. But again, we have to work like crazy to avoid reality of the gun. Otherwise, the horror of the system and, and the horror of what we have created for our children becomes too clear and the people recoil. Uh, so anyway, sorry, a bit of a ramble, but I just want to point out that it's, it's hard to even find the right words. No, it's all right. I'm getting more information. I'm learning every day from you. I listen to, I try to listen to all your stuff and I'm like, I remember the first thing I listened to, I was skeptical. It was the story of your enslavement, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I watched that like a little bit, like over a year ago. I was like shocked. I'm like, this is, he's right. This is, I remember learning Well, skepticism about is good. I, I hope that you will continue to be skeptical. I mean, I yeah. hope that I earn people's trust over time, uh, which yeah. certainly doesn't mean that everything is perfect or true. But I, I try to provide good arguments and evidence and where I'm incorrect, I'll... I'll, I'll announce it uh, openly and so on. But um, yeah, I think skepticism is good. But uh, to me, as I mentioned before, artificial skepticism is not good, right? So lots of people will say, well, I don't agree with everything that Steph says, as if I do, right? <laughs> but but uh, I don't know. But he's got some good points. Uh, and that's a way of creating, you know, it's creating the appearance of artificial, like I'm still an independent thinker. I don't just take what Steph says on gospel. Well, <laughs> but those aren't the only two options, right? To to arbitrarily reject stuff to create a sense of pseudo-independence is as irrational as accepting everything I say without any proof or, you know, well, Steph said it, uh, I don't even know the arguments, but it must be true. I mean, these aren't the only two options. You know, the option is for us to meet in reason and evidence and see what the overlap is. Um, and people who say, well, I don't agree with everything that Steph says, but, 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 well, they're really not being very kind to me. And I think given the amount of material that I put out there for free, I think people should be kind to me. So if people say to me or say to others, I don't agree with everything that Steph says, but blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, tell me, you know, show me the kindness of pointing out where I'm incorrect. Show me the kindness of pointing out where I'm incorrect. Like if I'm, if I'm a blind guy about to wander into a street and there's a bus coming, will you do me the favor of pulling me back? Will you do me yeah. the kindness, especially since I'm such a public figure, will you do me the kindness of helping, to helping me to correct my errors? Uh, because that is an act of great charity and benevolence and compassion and brotherly and sisterly affection. But people who just say, well, you know, he's wrong about some things. He's right about some things, wrong about some things. I don't agree with him about some things. Say, well, tell me, don't, don't you know, <laughs> don't, uh, 
uh, don't don't uh, don't hold these cards so close to your chest. I mean, I'm very generous with my thoughts. Uh, I would hope that people would repay me with at least an email saying you're factually incorrect about this, your logic is incorrect on that, so that I can do the right thing, refine the conversation, keep approaching truth. But this is a story as old as Socrates. Everybody told Socrates that he was wrong, and then when he would inquire as to how they knew all of this, uh, they would suddenly. Uh, rouse the mob against him and <laughs> get all kinds of upset. So, yeah, I mean, you just see this um, see this kind of stuff a lot. So I just wanted to sort of mention that. That if you are out there and you know where I'm incorrect or, you know, woo, let me know, let me know, let me know. I will let you know. I, um, I, took it, I look at your work critically and I look, try to see if there's any inconsistencies, like for your podcast. Like sometimes I'm trying to look, like, is he keeping up on his topics, like throughout the, throughout the um, whole stream? And I'm like, hmm. So far, he's keeping on point. He's he's a little bit rambling, but that's okay. It's not it's not yeah, a point yeah. of being a dick. Yeah, um, you gotta look for like, what's is he getting his message out? Is he conveying his thoughts, or is it just rambling on people's emotions in the time? So I was watching um, just before it was about the psychopaths with the um, with, um I think it was about but the uh, the ones that are intelligent and. The ones that are erratic, they don't, they rely on impulse, and there's the intelligence ones we have to watch out for because they can read people's emotions and their wants and needs in the moment. And I thought about it, like, hmm, that's getting me a little bit more skeptical about stuff. I gotta make sure he's not being a. Um, yeah, that's well, that's a secondary thing, right? So yeah, you know, I don't know. The people have never heard is, of the Sunday Show, but but people say, um, well, so that's wrong, and then people say, well, just call into a Sunday show and, and tell him and debate him or whatever, right? And then people say, oh, yes, but you see, Steph is a brain Svengali. <laughs> you know, he has dark necromancer, necromancer powers to twist and shape reality. He has the patented Steve Jobs reality distortion field, and uh, he he's a sophist man. He will make my argument look bad and his look good, even though the complete opposite is true. And I'm not going to step into his den of iniquity and let his brain viruses attack my noble truths and come out looking the worst even though i'm right so no i am not gonna it's like oh come on <laughs> oh come on come on that's just sad just have to drop your ignorance and pride and step up to the plate and stick to your values and um, well i mean i'm not hitting anyone i mean yeah. yes of course i'm gonna if i believe my position is right, i'm gonna defend my position of course because hopefully it's not my position but it's the truth and so I, you know, people who say that I'm wrong, um, well, it's, you know, it's just, it's too obvious. Anybody who doesn't see it is, is just fooling themselves. And people say, well, Seth's just wrong. Well, you should call into his, you know, he does listen to conversations. I would try to make myself available. I don't think I've ever refused a debate. Uh, I try to make myself as available as possible. I will rearrange my schedule. I will find whatever time I can. I will try and be as flexible as I can. People are willing to debate me anytime. Uh, people are sorry. They're able to debate me at any time whatsoever. And yes, I will concede some points if I'm incorrect. I've done that many, many times. So people who say, "Well, you didn't correct himself," it's just just a lie, right? It's just nonsense. But you know, this is just empty braggadocia, right? So people say, "Well, Steph's not right about something." Oh well, um, what is it? Well, you know, it's complicated. He's got some things which are contradictory and so on. Oh well, what are they? Uh, well, you know, I. I'm still, I'd have to look that up and get back to you. I mean, this is just nonsense, right? And this is just somebody saying, oh, I could, uh, I can beat this guy up. Oh, let's not make it a violent metaphor. Let's just, you know, oh, Steph, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty crappy tennis player. I could totally beat him. And um, they say, okay, well, 
here's, here's a racket. No, no, I, uh, I don't want to do it right now. Uh, and, and, and Steph has, what he does is he'll, he's got a little laser. He'll shine lights in your eyes when you're about to hit the ball back so you can't hit it. So that's the only reason he looks good is he uses these tricks and he cheats and so on. And it's like, oh, come on. I mean, how many times do you have to say somebody's wrong, be invited to debate with that person, and then they keep making up excuses? I mean, you get that they, it's just a position that they've taken because they weren't raised to be independent critical thinkers, and so they're afraid of uh, fusion, right? Like if they step into my outline, they suddenly become me, we become one, and they have no independence, and then they're criticized for being some slavish Stephbot follower and so on. It's like, but it doesn't matter. As I've mentioned a million times, I'm completely irrelevant to the equation. It doesn't matter who says two and two make four. It doesn't matter who came up with UPB. It doesn't matter who makes the best arguments for the non-aggression principle or for virtue or for statelessness. It doesn't matter. Yeah, or UPB. It doesn't matter. Take. I mean, I don't have. I'm. I'm proud of my accomplishments because they were hard, and I think I've worked hard for them. But the fact that they're me. Is irrelevant. So when people say, well, I don't agree with everything that Steph says, they've packed a huge amount of anti-philosophical, anti-thought into that, right? Because philosophy is not about agreement. Like if you and I are trying to decide where we go on vacation, that's something which we have to agree on. But imagine me saying, well, I, I don't believe with Euclid about, I, I don't believe what Euclid says about the opposite ankle theorem. Why on earth, what Euclid, why, why bring Euclid into it? <laughs> you either agree with the opposite angle theorem or you don't, or the triangle inequality relation, TIR. You know, it's actually everything else was called a theorem, but triangle inequality, they had to say relation because otherwise it spells tit, which would have been too much for us in junior high school. <laughs> but, yeah. but what does it matter? What, you know, I don't agree with what Einstein says about the speed of light. Well, that's just anti-scientific in such a fundamental way that it, it actually blows my mind. It's not whether you agree or not. It's whether it's true or not. It's not whether Einstein said it or not. It's whether it is or not, whether the evidence supports, whether the mathematics holds. But, you know, Fermat's last theorem, nobody says, well, Fermat has been disproven. No, his last theorem, uh, sorry, has been proven. I think it was uh, proven a couple of years ago, quite a few years ago now. Read a book about it a long time ago. But... um, it's, it's, it's this language where people don't have honesty. The language distorts inevitably. And, and so when people say, well, I don't agree with everything Steph says, well, <laughs> I mean, it's like saying, I don't, believe, I don't accept what, Steph's, what Steph proves. I mean, that, that would be a more, I, I'm going to reject what Steph has proven. Or um, I'm, going to, <laughs> I'm going to reject UPB although I cannot disprove it. That's the truth of the, of the statement. Then it's, obviously it's emotional and so on. But they have to personalize it like, like I'm just asserting stuff and you either agree with me or you don't. You know, it's like the equivalent of saying, <clears throat> I don't like every band that Steph likes. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Of course. But this is what people, this is where people are. I mean, they, they can't think, they can't think, they can't think. And yet they have to pretend that they can, because otherwise the tragedies of what was taken from them is too much to bear. Yeah, I'm trying to learn to think now. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm slow. I'm just trying to listen to what you're saying and thinking of a, a thought of what to come up with next. And um, mm. 
it's hard. You don't have to. Look, I mean, you don't have to because I'm, I'm just sort of talking about stuff that I see occasionally sort of floating around. And and people, they, they do get, I mean, obviously, there's an emotional basis to this. And people say this with God, too. Maybe you want to talk about this. Because people say, I believe in God. But this is a contradictory statement. Even in even taken in, in a, like no other philosophy, just look at the actual statement. I believe in God is a self-contradictory statement. You believe in because if something basically. exists, you don't believe in it. It is, right? Yeah. I don't look at I don't point at a tree and say I believe in that tree. I don't look at the sun and say I believe in that sun. No, that's a tree. The sun is out. <laughs> That is I the sun. Joe Pesci. <laughs> I believe in Joe Pesci. You <laughs> uh, <George laughs> the saint of the <laughs> Catholic anti-imagery <laughs> of the mafia movies. But, but to say I believe in God is self-contradictory because you're talking about something that objectively exists and therefore belief doesn't have anything to do with it. You hear that? I have a fire alarm. I have a fire alarm. Give me a second. Do you need to go? I think um, let's not have somebody else. No, no more philosophers burnt to the crisp. That's one of the mottos of Free to Bed Radio. <laughs> Sorry about that. Fire on, no, no, fire see, do you believe? I believe in gravity. Nobody says, I believe that two and two make four. I believe that the world is round. No, the world is round. Yeah. I believe in God makes no sense because you are saying belief which is a subjective state like i can say um i believe i don't even like the phrase i believe because it it really muddies the waters of philosophy so much and if anyone in the chat room can think of a good example i can't right now um because everything i can say that i believe i have some like i believe my wife loves me well i have lots of objective evidence for all of that reason and evidence yeah, reason and evidence. Um, uh, I believe that this show is quite successful. Well, I have. No, this show is quite successful. That's the evidence for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've got food. <laughs> yeah. So that's... Um, I say, I believe that I'm a public speaker. Well, I think there's, there's evidence for that. Um, right? So the guy invited him to Vancouver and made money. Just of the people who showed up. But... Um, but... Uh, so you, you can have sort of an I believe thing, but I believe just has no place in philosophy and, and it has no place in describing reality because reality is or it isn't. We accept reality or we reject it, but we don't believe in reality. You know, they always have these cheesy movie things, you know, some magic ass fairy crap that comes out and, say, and the, the tagline is this movie, believe. <laughs> like, no, I don't think I will. Thank you very much. Uh, you can prove I'll it or not. Prove it. Or, yeah, or or I can suspend my disbelief in order to enjoy the fact that you know the the the, the Tennessee Williams play happening on stage is not real. It's just pretend. But I'll suspend my disbelief to enjoy it more. That's fine. Whatever, right? Yeah. But this I believe stuff. The moment somebody says I believe, what they're saying is it's not true. It's a belief, but it's not true. So I believe is exactly the same as saying it's false. When somebody says, I believe that God exists, what they're actually saying is it's false that God exists because I have to say I believe rather than God exists. So if somebody says, I accept the existence of God, well, then they have to show the existence of God, which they can't do, of course, right? Yeah. 
It's and only. the natural, natural consequences of failing to prove something is that you have to reject it. I, <laughs> I believe in square circles. No, you're wrong it's about square. square circles. It exists, right? It's square. It's made that way. So when, when, everyone's, when people say, well, I don't accept everything that Steph says, I mean, they're just basically saying, well, I don't have the capacity to evaluate this very persuasive person's statements, there, but I'm going to pretend that I don't agree with everything to maintain the veneer of independent thought, which I don't possess. And, and I don't mean that critically. I mean, like in a negative way, it's just, it's just sort of a fact. And this is very clear. I mean, this is very clear to anyone with any eyes to see. And... And yet it's very hard for people to process. And that's because philosophy has been a government program low these thousands of years. And like every government program, it causes more disasters. It obscures more truth. And frankly, it costs more money than could ever have yeah. been imagined. I'm not even in the workforce yet. And I'm still like, like, how may I get a job with all this, like, billions of billions and trillions of dollars in debt? And like, how am I, what we got to do? What, what is my... I'm skeptic about the future. I'm cynical slightly about it. I'm like, what am I going to do? What can I do? And I'm, think, I'm watching a show and I'm thinking, you know what? If I can't do anything that's beyond my reach, I'll try to do what's right in front of me, make myself happy, and make other people around me happy, and point out the obscurities and the lies in front of us. It's something I can think of, really. Yeah, I, I choose to associate with rational people. I do not expose my daughter to irrational people or to abusive thoughts. Um, I uh, I speak truth to power uh, as much as possible. I mean, I was, I tell you, between us, just between us girls, um, I was pretty nervous going out in Brazil to tell a bunch of politicians and priests that religion was terrible for kids and uh, that taxation is theft. I, I must have gone to pee like five times <laughs> before I went out because I thought, oh my God, I'm a nervous pee or whatever, right? But yeah, you go so out yeah, and you do it. I got on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was asking yeah, about a few times so I had before the show. I'm like, oh no. Yeah, oh yeah. No, I, I get. I mean, I have to. I have to pee at least two or three times before I go out on stage. Uh, it's just. <laughs> I mean, I've had this ever since I was an actor. But, um, but it's you know, it can be a little nerve wracking. And um, but you know, you, this is what you need courage for. You need courage for stuff that's easy. <laughs> I, I'm going to steal myself to climb these stairs. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, I'm going to, I'm going to screw my courage to the sticking place so that I can finish this Kit Kat. But, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the stuff that we can do is just, just speak the truth. You know, as I was saying earlier in the show, we, we speak the truth. And if people continue to advocate and enthusiastically support violence against us, well, everybody knows what my opinion is in the long run with those relationships. Everyone of course makes their own decision, but that's something I can do. Who goes the way? All we have to do is just point at the guy and whatever people we can and let them decide on their own. And if they want to do it, they can. If they don't, and it's got to be a backlash. And later on in their life, like having kids, if you abuse them, it's got to come around. My father sort of abused me, and um, he still is. And I'm, I'm just so trying sorry. to work my way through. Um, what was that? Well, I, I just wanted to say I'm so sorry. I really am sorry. My advice, of course, is get a therapist and stay in conversation as long as you can, being as honest as you can about what your experience is. That's, yeah, I, think that's I need nice to do that, to do. too. Yeah. It's hard. And, uh, my, dad oh, it my dad's like a 1950s guy. Since mm -hmm. what happened to him, his, uh, his real father left him when he was three, and he had a stepfather come in later on in his life, and he was cruel to him. And when I was little, when I went over to my grandpa's house, he would make me sweep dirt. 
sweep the dirt on the patio. I didn't see the point of him. I'm like, okay. And what happened? It, he was a little bit of a nut, and and my, my dad's relationship with him soured, and I'm I'm in sort of this Stockholm syndrome relationship with my father, and I'm like, you know what? I gotta be honest with my feelings, and I gotta get this out whenever I can, mm. when when I'm ready, and I have to uh, I tackle this. My parents are divorced, and um, a lot of there's so much things. I'm I'm surprised I made it through all this, and I need to keep going. I had to be strong in yeah. I need to be stronger than him, and uh, yeah, I'm a little hurt by him. And I'm yeah. I'm a little bit. I remember. Uh, I was just. I was just reminded, sorry, when you were talking about being dirt. Was it you or your dad who was sweeping dirt? No, it was me. Maybe, yeah. <clears throat> I remember when I went to go visit my dad in Africa when uh, I was 16. And hadn't seen him in a long time. And, you know, he flew me out there for stay for a couple of months. And uh, one of the things he set me to doing was he had a, a garage with a tin roof. And the tin roof had become rusted. And so he put me up there with a sanding block and uh, some paint and I sanded down and repainted his tin roof. Now, this is Africa. <laughs> it's yeah. hot. You know? Really and Which I'm up there for days. North or south? I'm sorry? Which part of Africa? North or south? Uh, south. Oh. Yeah, it definitely gets hot down there. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was hot and um, I mean, at the time, I was such an empty vessel of Will Lessness then. I really didn't like it in particular, but I didn't have any, you know, there was no option to me called, well, wait a second here, why, why are you putting me to work in this? I mean, I, I'm a hard worker. I don't mind work at all. But, you know, I haven't seen you for years, so why, why am I up here it's by myself, repairing your roof when it's nine million degrees outside and you're, you know, having some tea and working on some of your papers? Uh, it's, it's just strange. It's just strange. I mean, there's a family story about my dad. I mean, I, I don't remember this because I was too young, but my dad was taking care of me, so to speak, and he wanted to play tennis with a friend of his, so he played tennis with a friend of his and left me unattended, and I crawled around, um, uh, ended up in a garden shed. I drank weed killer, ended up in the hospital, almost died. I mean, he's not necessarily the most, well, anyway, <laughs> to get into all yeah. of that. But, um, but yeah, it, it is, you know, so having, I think having these conversations uh, is, is important. Yeah, yeah, I get it out. I feel again. I feel getting bottled up. I I need to do something about this. I dropped out of school because of this because I didn't I didn't know myself. I'm like, why am I here? And like, when I'm in the classroom there, and when I was in the local college, everyone was like a zombie. They didn't talk. It's like they just listened to to the uh, professor, and when he asked to ask if someone can answer this question, no one really answered. And I'm like, like, why am I here? What am I doing? I need to figure myself out. I I sort of dropped out, and I'm like, I was gonna be, I was becoming an engineer science. I was going for engineering science. I wanted to become a scientist. Um, probably work on robotics or um, biomedical, something like that. Something that can help people and innovate. And um, seeing how the hospitals are kind of like not privatized anymore; they're owned by basically the government and the federal government regulating everything. There's no room for imagination or um, or progression. It's just stuck. It's stagnant, and it's getting piled up and there's only like what one I think there's actually a few hospitals on here on the whole island on Long Island there's about I think nine nine hospitals my major ones and nothing in between I can't think of really any physician area or anything like that or private doctor really 
maybe a few. Well, but I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, obviously, your life is your own. But my suggestion would be that if you have a real passion for doing that, I wouldn't let the statism of the environment stand in your way. Yeah. I think I you know, so, okay, maybe you have to work in a semi-socialized hospital or whatever. But when it comes right down to it, it's you and somebody who needs help. How it gets yeah. funded, how it gets paid for, the, the weird incentives in the system, it really does come down to you giving somebody help or doing research that is going to help people. Now, you might want to read uh, Mary Ruart's R-U-W-A-R-T. Some of her work is, is very interesting. Uh, she spent a lot of time in the research world in, in medicine. Uh, she's been on my show a couple of times. You can you can look at it as well. But I, I'm very much around. Uh, th there's an argument that Murray Rothbard makes, which I think is a fairly good argument. I think it's a fairly good argument. He says, "Well, what jobs can voluntarists take in a status environment?" And he basically makes the argument that we can take jobs that would exist in a free society, but we we really shouldn't take jobs that wouldn't exist in a free society. Obviously, there are doctors in a free society, there are researchers in a free society, and so on. And so that's valid. You know, do, does that mean that we go join the expeditionary marine force of infinite imperialism? Well, no, because that wouldn't yeah. exist in a free society. Yeah. Um, policemen, who knows? Um, I would say not really prison guards, because most of the people are in there uh, as a result of nonviolent non-crimes or a direct result of child abuse, abuse. Uh, in the home and in the... Um, in the school environment and so on. So, but, but I think that's, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's down to everyone's conscience and I don't, I, I'm not particularly big on faulting people who are trying to do whatever they can to survive in a status environment. You might say, take your student loans and do whatever. And once you're in a situation of compulsion, ethics doesn't really have anything to say to you, which is why nutritionists don't visit prisons. Right? Yeah. You guys should eat more healthy. Well, I just eat whatever slop they put in front of me, so I don't really have a choice. So I'm not really sure how your advice to change my habits is is whatever. Right? So, I you know I, I don't think uh, so. I just want to sort of point out that if it is a passion for yours, if you're enthusiastic about it, I wouldn't let the state take that away. That's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I'll try getting back into that. I'm going to be working with my father soon, so I'll try to work that out or. Either if that doesn't work out, I'll try working on my channel. I see it on your site. It's called Dan's Various Stuff. It's my uh, YouTube channel. I'm not sure what to do with it yet. I'm figuring it out, seeing what I want to do as a passion. Maybe talking about a little bit of philosophy, other things, nature stuff, a bunch of other things I can think of. Hey, you trust me, you never know where speaking the truth is, is going to lead you. I mean, I didn't even view it as a hobby to begin with. I just viewed it as, uh, you know, I'd like to get some thoughts out there. and. <laughs> <laughs> here we go right so yeah so you you know speak uh, speak honestly and passionately and with integrity and you just never know where that's going to take you yeah thanks Steph. all right listen thanks for a great chat i'm sorry that <laughs> i i have you know this is uh, this is the morning for me so you you've now been introduced to morning Steph, which most of you have not had much exposure to since i was doing my uh, traffic jams yeah, the well, yeah. I'm I'm normally the afternoon delight, not the morning yeah. ramble fest. But um, here you do get uh, a sense of uh, of uh, what is for me pre dawn Steph. But um, anyway, I hope you all have a great week. Uh, thank you, thank you to the people who came, who are coming through to support the documentary. Oh man, I got to tell you, I'm working with Luke, the bee, who is. Uh, really, it's alchemy, what he does. I don't understand it, but the animations and the clips that he's coming up with are to die for. My uh, screen is is literally 
dripping with the French kissing I'm giving to his animations that are so beautiful. So, Luke the Bee, thank you. And we're starting to get um, a really great soundtrack put forward. We've gone with a different instrument choice, uh, the accordion and the kazoo. No, I'm kidding. That's the guitar. But I think it's really uh, great stuff. So it's really coming along nicely. And thank you so much to everyone. You know, we got to buy the software. We had to buy some hardware to make sure the rendering times are not weeks. Uh, and so if you want to help out, freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. Uh, all, all is greatly appreciated, um, but it's uh, it's coming along, and uh, I'm uh, I'm thrilled. And I think it's running time is an hour, so it's not going to be the you know give half a day to Zeitgeist, uh, but we're going to try and keep it short. And I'm very very pleased with what's coming along. Yeah, it's almost two hours. Yeah, some of your stuff. Well, I think three. I think the second one is two and a half or something like that. Two, uh, two but of course, you know, they added a whole bunch of interviews. I'm sorry. Two hours. I think it was two hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're trying to keep it really compact. And uh, yeah. when I'm not doing interviews, though, uh, if this one goes well, uh, I will absolutely uh, travel and uh, corner people and do interviews because um, <laughs> I really do want to get I want to get the philosophy out and the expert opinion behind it. And that's the goal for the next one. But um, anyway, this one is, uh, is, is coming along. And thank you, everybody, so, so much for the support of the documentary and for your support of the show. Remember, you don't have to donate a penny. Um, <laughs> live the values. That's for me. Uh, and, you know, if you do like to share the site, if you want to Facebook it, you want to Google Plus it, you want to, I don't know, show it to the last other guy on MySpace, whatever you like. <laughs> but if you can uh, support the show, if you can uh, talk up the show, if you can share the show, uh, that to me is is great. And that's free. Uh, that really does help. So, uh, so thank you, everybody, so, so much. As always, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful Sunday. And remember, next week, okay, we'll switch things around a bit. We're going to go to, let's see. 22 over 7. Let's go, let's go to pie time, uh, and we'll explain more. No, we're just going to stay at Eastern Standard. And uh, hope yourselves have a great day. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.